welcome to episode 30 and the season 2 finale of The Toth Zone, a podcast about how an obsession with music can give us a reason to live, but can also wreck our lives. I'm your host, James Toth. Gotta say, dear listeners, I was a little apprehensive about the prospect of going into this episode without a plan, and a little nervous about how I was going to fill a whole episode, but between the poll question and your questions and comments, this may end up being the longest episode yet, so great job, everyone. Uh, I have a new cup of coffee, uh, so let's get going. Our most recent poll question was, What's the best use of non-diegetic music used in a film or TV show? This question received some especially thoughtful and interesting responses. Uh, Corey, who runs the world's greatest record label, Three Lobed, says he absolutely adores the sync near the end of the last episode of Mindhunter's first season with Led Zeppelin's In the Light. Uh, So well done, works so well with the season and the culmination of a season. Corey, I've never seen this show, but uh, In the Light has long been my favorite Led Zeppelin song. Uh, I know Zeppelin is about far more than just riffs, but I'm a riff person, and I think In the Light contains the only Zeppelin riff that, in my opinion, gives Sabbath a run for their money. Joe Carver picks Green Onions in the Sandlot. That's a good one. Um, Both Joe and my wife Leah mentioned a fight the power and do the right thing, but both conceded the fact that the song's status as non-diegetic is questionable. Uh, but I think all three of us agree that by blurring the line, Spike Lee does something really inventive. Because, well, of course, Radio Rahim hears the music. The speaker is literally pressed against his ear for most of the time he's on screen. And everyone around him hears it, too. I've seen this film a dozen times, but not in several years. But if I remember correctly, the audio quality of the song changes at at least one point. Uh, when it's blaring from the boombox, and then the song also plays over scenes where the boombox isn't present. Uh, Leah teaches this in her Intro to Film class, and we discuss it every semester. Travis says there are nearly a dozen Sopranos scenes, but his favorite is Keith's great through and through on season two finale. Travis says Keith's voice is the perfect medium for the message. Of course, we're talking about Keith Richards here. Uh, I agree, Travis. I once made a comp of all of Keith's best Stones tunes and Man, it ruled so hard. Uh, I hope Keith lives forever. The master. Alan Holt cites episode 8 of season 3 of Twin Peaks and the use of Christoph Penderecki's Threnody to the victims of Hiroshima as his number one spot. Uh, Good choice, though I will risk getting some hate mail when I say I didn't love that episode as much as everyone else seemed to. Uh, Alan's number two is Ghetto Boy's Damn It Feels Good to Be a Gangsta from Office Space. Alan, just your mentioning of this scene made me remember it and laugh really hard, so I think that's a really good choice. Uh, Wasn't there a Family Guy parody of that scene, too, with the Surfing Bird record? Alan has two runner-ups, Magic Man on the Virgin Suicides and an episode of St. Elsewhere back in the 80s, where they used what sounded like a bootleg Led Zeppelin performance of Heartbreaker for a dream sequence. Thanks, Alan. Chris Jude is is concise and succinct here. He just says, It gets me every time Bill Murray lights his joint to life on Mars in the life aquatic. (laughs) Ah, good one. Philip says, It's always the end in Apocalypse Now for me. 
Um, opening and closing it with that song makes it seem as though the film is a hallucination within the experience of listening to it. Well said, Philip. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen the documentary about the making of Apocalypse Now. It's called Heart of Darkness. Uh, it's almost as good as the film itself. I highly recommend it. Andrew had a few. Arvo Pertz for Alina pieces in Gus Van Zandt's Jerry. Julian Schnabel's Mosaic of Cuban Music in Before Night Falls and Richard Kelly's use of pop music in both Donnie Darko and Southland Tales. Andrew also says a couple came to mind immediately, but it could be argued that they are non-diegetic. And this is, I think, a theme that ran through a lot of the responses. Uh, Leonard Cohen in Herzog's Fata Morgana, and uh, Justin singing the killer's I Got Soul in Southland Tales. Incredibly, I've only seen one of these movies you mentioned, uh, Andrew, so I'm adding them to the queue. Uh, Thank you. Peter Taylor contributes Crime in the City Solution in Wings of Desire, or both Tammy Wynette songs in Five Easy Pieces. Uh, That's a fantastic choice, the second one. Um, Karen Black's best role, maybe. I'm just saying a lot. Endlessly rewatchable film. Great music. I very memorably saw that movie on a big screen for my birthday one year. That was really fun. There should be a Karen Black statue erected in Chicago. My friend author, podcaster, and music writer David Klein's response bears quoting at length. He says, Come Sail Away in Freaks and Geeks is the use of a pre-existing song that comes to mind when I think of a really memorable, transcendent even, usage of that kind. I say this because Stick sucks, and that song is like all of them, so cloying, so wannabe profound. So why is it that watching Sam and Cindy dancing to Come Sail Away will always make me tear up? Because love conquers all? Because maybe it's kind of pretty once you stop hating it and forget about Cartman's version. Because Sam is me and look how happy Sam is. And Lindsay as she watches him. Music is healing. It even heals the hate in my heart for sticks. Thanks, David. David and I talked privately about this and we agreed that Freaks and Geeks was really good in general about using music in the series. Uh, I can't hear Squeezebox anymore without thinking of a particular very funny scene. Uh, and the scene where Nick quasi-serenades Lindsay with Styx's lady. Oh, cringiest, cringiest moment. Uh, oh, oh, and Ripple, when Lindsay makes uh, that big decision, the big life decision at the end. Uh, really great show. My friend and former bandmate David Hickok cites the Pixie song, Where Is My Mind, from the Fight Club movie. He says, quote, I'm pretty take it or leave it on both the Pixies and the works of Chuck Palahniuk. The film is not great, and nothing I have felt a need to rewatch except for this one scene. I saw it in the theater, and having that whole massive and immersive sound system snap into such a gorgeously recorded song was unreal. And now when I hear that song, I'm reliving that experience every time. Beyond that, the film overlaid so much context onto the song itself. Before experiencing it that way, the song was polite and pleasant, a friendly little ditty to break up the album. But paired with the bleakness of that point of film, the song gains an incredible power and depth that wasn't there before. Thank you, David. Uh, I, too, saw Fight Club in the theater three times, as a matter of fact, because I had a college girlfriend who was obsessed with it. And I agree, that scene is pretty dramatic and pretty powerful. I think I like Fight Club a little more than you do, uh, though, as you know, I share your general ambivalence about the Pixies. In any case, great choice. Another old friend of mine, Smokey, has two answers. The first is totally chalk, he says, but I honestly can't think of a better example than Lou Reed's Perfect Day in Trainspotting, just absolutely gorgeous use of that song. The second is Daniel Johnston's Casper from Kids. 
That scene totally fucked me up when I saw it as a senior in high school. Additionally, it turned me on to Daniel Johnston, so that's pretty cool. Uh, those are great choices, and both movies have really good soundtracks. Uh, and this is the first of two responses to cite Train Spotting. Uh, thanks, dude. And I'd like to make a little plug here for Smokey's fantastic band, Little Gold. Definitely check them out. My pal Angelo says, The movie, Goodfellas. The song, Then He Kissed Me by the Crystals. I think this is unique, too, in that the entire song is played in that single-take shot. I can't think of another instance where a whole track is played non-diegetically and also without a single cutaway. Yes, it's a great scene, Angelo. Uh, Tom also contributes a scene from Goodfellas, but a different song. Uh, It's true, Angelo and Tom, Scorsese, I think, was really masterful about utilizing movies in his films. I mean, it's almost too obvious to even mention that. You can tell music means a lot to him, I think. Tom says... The first example to come to mind is the famous montage of dead bodies piling up to the Layla outro in Goodfellas, so I'll go with that. Damn, Tom, you stole one of my picks. But yeah, I always picture poor Frankie Carbone on the meat hook when I hear that coda now. If you guys don't know the story of Jim Gordon, uh, who wrote the Layla coda, uh, look it up. The stuff of nightmares. Uh, For TV, Tom cites the repeated use of different versions of You'll Never Leave Harlan Alive in the season finales of the series Justified. I've actually never watched Justified, Tom, but I really like Walton Goggins, so it's on my ever-growing list of things to watch if and when I get the flu or pneumonia or something else that will physically prevent me from working because that's what it takes, for I am insane. John also stole and preempted one of my picks. He says, Immediately, Vincent Gallo's Buffalo 66 came to mind. Heart of the Sunrise by Yes is used for a very intense, albeit somewhat explicit and violent scene that floors me every time I see it. Totally agree, John. Extremely powerful scene and difficult to imagine any other song accompanying the uh, the Scott Wood, I guess you'd call it the Scott Wood uh, uh, fantasy or hallucination. Uh, John also talks about the scene in the same movie with Christina Ricci tap dancing to Moonchild by King Crimson, and also the scene where Ben Gazzara sings, quote-unquote, Fools Rush In. Uh, He says, I love both of these scenes so much because they are so strange, surreal, and awkward, but also incredibly beautiful. John points out the way the atmosphere and the lighting changes when these two scenes begin, and the sort of dreamlike quality they have. We're in total agreement here, John. Um, I realize Gallo is a divisive figure, but I've always really enjoyed his work in both film and music. And Buffalo 66 is probably my favorite of his films. I will say that I think both the Ben Gazzara, Nelson Riddle scene and, and the Moonchild tap dancing bowling alley scene are interesting. And while they may appear somewhat diegetic, they are also questionably non-diegetic. Uh, the dreamlike quality of, of Ricci dancing in the bowling alley to Moonchild suggests that the song was definitely not playing in the bowling alley. And, and why would it be? I mean, I would go bowling in a place like that, but I don't think that place exists. And the Gazara scene is just so disorientingly surreal, right? He's lip-syncing, obviously so. But is it obvious to Christina Ricci's character, who's listening... Is it obvious to Gazzara's character? Are are we, the audience, supposed to extract a message from this obvious artificiality? Like, the Sinatra version is piped in over Gazzara's presumably amateur performance, as if shielding us from it for some reason. 
brilliant scene. I like it when there's ambiguity about diegetic versus non-diegetic. I'm sure film scholars can draw very clear lines here, but um, I'm not a film scholar. And, and Buffalo 66 example is like this, as is our earlier uh, Do the Right Thing example. And, and also in some ways similar to Amy Mann's Wise Up in uh, P.T. Anderson's Magnolia, right? Because the characters sing the song, but unlike the viewer, they aren't really hearing the song, which I love. Funnily enough, my friend Tim addresses this very thing by posing the question, is there a term for music that starts diegetic and transitions to non-diegetic? Music that starts playing in scene with ambient tone, then goes to soundtrack and continues as the scene switches to a place where the music is definitely not playing in scene. I think some of these examples like Do the Right Thing, Magnolia, and Buffalo 66 all contain scenes that it could be argued are transdiegetic. Speaking of Tim, who is, let the record show, something of a film scholar, uh, he submitted a long list which included a few of the things we've mentioned already, like Train Spotting and the Pixie Song and Fight Club, uh, as well as many other really good choices like Tubular Bells and The Exorcist and Sound of Silence and The Graduate and uh, The Church and Echo and the Bunnymen scenes in Donnie Darko. He says that these, though, while great, are discounted for him because they were so effective that they have subsequently been used to death in lesser works. I think if this poll were a contest, Tim would probably get the award for the most thoughtful and detailed response. So if I ever make Toth Zone t-shirts, Tim, you have earned the first one off the line. But ultimately, Tim chose three. He narrowed it down to uh, Yellow's Oh Yeah and Ferris Bueller, Darudi Collum's crossfading into His Name is Alive during the opening epiphany scene in Jerry Maguire, and the prisoner's use of the Beatles' All You Need Is Love. Of the latter, Tim says, one of those moments that must have been a mind-busting moment to have experienced when it first aired and probably served as a template for many filmmakers afterward. Carbon Joe's pick is Jim O'Rourke's Happy Days in Julian Donkey Boy. That's our second Harmony Korine film here, y'all. Um, and also Love Liza's use of O'Rourke's songs. I'm a Harmony Korine fan and an even bigger Jim O'Rourke fan, and somehow... I'd either forgotten or I didn't realize that Happy Days was used in that film. Uh, thanks, Joe. Mike Twin Lakes Records says it took him all of about five seconds to come up with The Israelites by Desmond Decker and the Aces, as it appears in Gus Van Zant's Drugstore Cowboy. There's something about it in the context of that movie and its characters that's just perfect. I'm pretty sure it qualifies, as I don't remember the characters listening to it at any point. Yeah, Mike, great movie, great song. I don't remember how Van Zant used the song in the film, but I've been meaning to rewatch it for a while now. It's been like 20 years. Okay, my turn. My pick for TV is the use of Dream Academy's Life in a Northern Town in the Season 3 King of the Hill episode, Wings of the Dope. Now, I'm a big fan of King of the Hill, and I've always liked Life in a Northern Town. I can't see how anyone uh, without ice water in their veins can cannot be moved by that tune. Uh, but I never really considered the song much beyond that until this bizarre episode of King of the Hill. For those unfamiliar with the show, I will briefly, very, very briefly sum up the scene. Okay, so Hank's live-in niece, Luann, voiced by the late Brittany Murphy, uh, communes with the angel of her dead boyfriend, Buckley, by way of an apparently haunted trampoline. And there's a scene where Luann wakes to the sound of the trampoline springs and goes outside to find a now-winged Buckley bouncing on the trampoline. And she confronts Buckley, who convinces her that he's an angel, 
and they jump on the trampoline to the sound of the Dream Academy song. And it's just beautiful. Buckley wasn't even a likable character on the show, but the, the song made Luann's grief and mourning of him so poignant and so bravely out of step with the show's fairly earthbound setting. Now, the choice of the song Life in a Northern Town is odd to me. Um, the show is based in Texas, and the characters do not live in anything resembling a northern town. But the song is there to trigger an emotional response. It totally does. Uh, the town where the show is set, Arlen, is fictional. So I suppose it could be northern Texas, but I'm not even sure about that. Um, given the character's proximity to Mexico, they're always traveling to Mexico on this show, doesn't quite make sense. I'm sorry, that's real nerd shit, but if you're not here for nerd shit, uh, why are you here? Maybe the song has some special meaning to the characters, but we are not told this, and I think that's for the better. I don't watch a lot of TV, but King of the Hill is one of maybe five or six TV shows that's ever truly captured my heart. Uh, they're just, there are even small details in the animation here that I love, like the fireflies and the shooting stars, and the fact that Luann seems to jump at like three times the speed of Buckley. Uh, who more floats than jumps on the trampoline, Because I guess because he's an angel now. And uh, the heat of the Texas night is almost palpable in this scene. Uh, quick diversion, but I, I remember reading Jack London's story To Build a Fire when I was really young. And it was one of the first times I remember a work of art having a physical effect on me. Because reading London's tale of a man and his dog hiking in the sub-zero Yukon uh, actually made me feel physically cold, like like I felt myself shiver, uh, despite having been perfectly comfortable before I read the story. So this King of the Hill scene does this too, it puts me right there in a, like a multi-sensory way, uh, but it really is the Dream Academy song that puts it over the top, totally cuts me, you know, Luann gets closure. My other TV pick is Bob James' Angela, a theme, theme from Taxi, one of my favorite tunes of all time, top 10, maybe top 5. Uh, the use of it in that scene, as the cab drives over the Queensboro Bridge on this kind of cloudy day, uh, just this blah, kind of grim-looking day, it both captures and evokes such a feeling of melancholy, this existential feeling of going nowhere, which is, of course, the assumed fate of the characters on the otherwise comedic show. Here's an interesting little tidbit about that opening, by the way. Uh, if you ever noticed, watching the opening, the, the buildings in the background keep reappearing on a loop. Uh, that's because the Queensboro Bridge is only a mile and a half long, and the segment was shot and then looped several times to run throughout the entire credits, which just adds to this sort of like existential, like going nowhere. Uh, next time you see it, keep your eye on the buildings in the background. You see, the best sitcom title sequence of all time is even cooler than you thought. How about that? Now, as far as my movie picks, uh, John stole mine when he mentioned Buffalo 66, and Tom and Angelo scooped me on Goodfellas, so I'll just add that I always thought the use of Little Green Bag by the George Baker selection in the title sequence of Reservoir Dogs was fucking cool as hell. Uh, now, I'm Tarantino agnostic for the most part, but I do think Reservoir Dogs is an excellent film, and, and there's something about the eight mostly besuited crooks strutting in slow motion and uh, Jan Visser's picked eighth-note bass line of that song just oozes cool. I don't know, what can I say? It worked on me. Uh, I totally want to hang with those dudes. But can you imagine if that scene was soundtracked by, like, the Black Keys or something? You, you would laugh at it. Even if you're a Black Keys fan, you would laugh. But man, Little Green Bag, 
it's perfect. It's like the, the Dutch green onions or, or maybe the Dutch Memphis soul stew. I also really love Barbara Mason's Yes, I'm Ready in Jesus' Son. God, what a song. Uh, the use of box music in Barry Lyndon, also, I think, really effective. And lastly, I was going to mention Cat Stevens' tunes in Harold and Maude, particularly the theme song, but I'm not sure, but I think... I think those songs were written specifically for the film. Maybe. I, I don't know. Uh, any Cat Stevens scholars on here want to clarify, I'd love to hear from you. Okay, that's enough of the poll question. Thank you all for contributing. Uh, throughout the whole second season, your engagement with these polls has been really encouraging and has made the podcast a lot more fun. The polls are definitely something we will continue if and when there is a third season. And I want to apologize to anyone who suggested a poll question that we haven't gotten to yet. Um, I can say in all sincerity that all of the questions suggested by listeners were great. And uh, hopefully we'll get to use them all at some point. Alrighty, now we'll get into some questions. Um, a lot of people wrote me uh, asking me various things, various random things. Um, my oldest friend NASA writes, quote, Curious what your Italian-American Staten Island mom thought about you moving to Knoxville and becoming a carpenter. I'm assuming she may not have seen the big picture of being a musician at the same time. Now, NASA knows my mom, so I think he's asking this for your benefit. Um, my parents, to their eternal credit, never really prevented my sisters and I from fulfilling our destinies, whatever they happen to be, even when they didn't understand them, which was most of the time. Uh, we had a lot of freedom growing up, and when I moved to Knoxville... I also hadn't lived with my parents for almost six years by that point. I lived in a punk house with my friends before college, and then I was in college for four or five years. Uh, so it's not like my mom was used to having me around much. Uh, but yes, NASA, as you know, my mom has always been both supportive of and bewildered by my life choices. Uh, for those of you who don't know, NASA is also Paul from the first season. One of my oldest, I think my oldest friend. Jem writes, It seems that in music now... There are either the rich, spoiled megastars or unknown hobbyists with nothing in between. Where did the middle go? Ooh, boy. Well, this is, a, this is too big a topic to go into deeply here. Um, but in my opinion, you are correct, Jim, that the working class artist is an endangered species. I've actually been tempted many times to address this in the podcast, but like I said, it's pretty complicated and for some reason that eludes me, it's also really divisive. It's just a question that makes people feel uncomfortable. But it's the elephant in the room of any conversation about the arts in 2021 or beyond. One book I'd recommend is The Death of the Artist by William Duresiewicz, uh, which explores in depth big tech's destructive force on the arts. Um, I actually think the roots of this predate the internet, though, or at least the internet as a large part of all of our lives. But, Jem, you mentioned the middle. I want to talk briefly about how there was a time when it was a lot harder to determine what the middle was because there wasn't data on everything. And so you relied on your friends and John Peel and your older sister and Funkmaster Flex and record stores and whoever to tell you about some new and exciting thing. And beyond that group, you had no idea how many people were also listening to that thing. There was a time, if you were in a band, when you could remain blissfully ignorant of even your own popularity. And now with social media and YouTube plays and Spotify streams, 
These things, fame and popularity, are easily quantifiable things. My most played song on YouTube has 39,000 views. Slint, 1.8 million. Lana Del Rey, 491 million. Coldplay, 1.4 billion. Concert promoters and the bookers of late-night TV shows used to rely on word of mouth, and they'd book the coolest and sometimes the most persistent bands. But now, concert promoters, both large and small, simply rely on the numbers. Uh, If two bands try to put a hold on the same date at your venue, you book the one with more streams and more YouTube plays, and you can't blame them for this, because they recognize that to break even in an already economically unstable business, it makes more sense to book a band with 3,000 followers on Twitter rather than 300. I mean, it's simple economics. I think the numbers game, though, goes back to the establishment in 1991 of SoundScan, which is now known as MRC Data. SoundScan measured actual sales using a point-of-sale barcode reader, and those sales were entered into a national database. Prior to this, Billboard tracked sales by calling stores across the U.S. and asking about sales, which of course resulted in a lot of crooked dealing and abuse and payola scams. Admittedly, not a great system. Uh, Now, SoundScan, as I said, existed as early as 1991, but I'm pretty sure back then you had to pay for the information. You may still, I'm not sure. And, uh, and it was, so it was mostly in the interest of like managers and labels and agents and bands for the most part remained totally in the dark about their relative rankings in the marketplace. As a fan too, you really had no idea how popular or unpopular a band you liked actually was, even if you thought you did. Uh, I'll give you an example from my own life. Some of you may recall a really good band from LA called Acetone. Now, everyone at Purchase College, where I went to school, loved Acetone, or at least everyone in the college radio station loved them. Uh, Acetone, to us, was one of the big indie bands, alongside Sonic Youth and Pavement and Superchunk. We had Acetone posters all over the office, and we always got extra promo materials from their label. Now, the reason for this popularity, I believe, was that Acetone had either played Purchase the year before I matriculated, or they played very close by. And so all the older people at Purchase, or the older people to me, they went to see them on that tour. So in this little bubble, Acetone became a very important and popular band. I mean, they were on every DJ's playlist on the radio station. So imagine our surprise when we all caravan to New York to see our beloved Acetone in concert. We're going to be late, fretted someone in the back seat. Parking is going to be insane. Well, parking ended up being a breeze, and the show while crowded enough, had not been even close to a sellout. We were expecting this sold-out capacity crowd. Now, this used to happen a lot. A band would play a small town or a college, and they would develop a fan base that was wildly disproportionate to their national profile. You know, it's the equivalent of the old joke about being big in Japan. My own band experienced something similar. We, We always did really well in the expected bigger markets and big cities, and we always did poorly in the expected tertiary markets and smaller cities. But we had disproportionately large fan bases in places like Columbia, Missouri, just because the two or three people who booked our shows liked us, and so we played there all the time. We always made sure it was on our route whenever possible. So I imagine the people in Columbia, Missouri, thought we were a much more popular band than we were because we would play a slightly bigger city just an hour or two away the following night, and it was crickets. No one. 
Now, some people argue that SoundScan was a net gain, especially for indie acts. That's an argument you can make. Uh, Rob Harvia wrote a great article for The Ringer just last month about the history of SoundScan, and it details how SoundScan really did help to amplify the mainstream popularity of formerly niche genres like country and alternative rock and hip-hop and R&B, and it allowed these acts to appear much higher in the Billboard charts than before, and it offered greater transparency about what was actually popular with consumers rather than what appeared to be or what crooked major labels wanted them to be. Now, the sound scan theory is just something I've been thinking about lately as a sort of proto-Spotify, pre-YouTube example of the music business being a numbers game uh, backed up by empirical data that reveals spending habits, which meant that the days of curators and tastemakers like John Peel and Funkmaster Flex was coming to an end. Uh, Late-night talk show hosts uh, who wanted ratings would no longer have bands they necessarily liked appear on the show as musical guests, but artists they knew were already popular and get people tuning in. Now, if this sounds familiar, it should, because it's pretty much how every facet of the industry now operates. I encourage everyone to read Rhett Miller's 2017 essay for The Baffler, The Loneliness of a Long-Distance Rocker, which really does one of the best jobs detailing the catastrophic changes that have occurred uh, that have really destroyed the ecosystem of the mid-level, working-class band. The artist and repertoire department, he writes has been replaced by a bot that alerts the label chief when an artist reaches a predetermined number of Twitter followers or Facebook likes. Writing a song might now be less important to your success than paying for 100,000 imaginary account holders to follow you on social media, end quote. People like David Lowry and Damon Krakowski and Liz Pelly, to name just a few, uh, have all written multiple excellent and enlightening pieces on music business ethics in the streaming age. If you're interested, I encourage you to read all of those writers. Uh, so, Jem, uh, I think this is the answer to your question is complicated and fraught, and unfortunately not an easy topic to tackle. And I don't want to get too inside baseball, and I imagine some listeners are already bored by this. So, uh, I'm glad these conversations are happening, but maybe another episode, a much longer episode. <laughs> Mark writes, now that we have seen deluxe reissues of New Age Records and Dollar Bin Broadway soundtracks, what gold is left to mine? So what's the final frontier? Uh, I mean, your guess is as good as mine. I know you can still pick up rare Zydeco and even some Cajun records pretty cheap, but I think collectors are even catching on to that. Even a few years ago, there were things I couldn't have imagined would ever be reappraised and rehabilitated, but I was wrong, so who knows? Uh, I think maybe the next wave will be telephone hold music, the kind of distorted, looped Muzak that makes Montevani sound like the Jesus Lizard. I know this sounds like a joke, but I could totally see it happening, especially if a label capitalized on the lo-fi nature of the anonymous stock music. I guess it's a form of library music. You know, they could focus on the anonymity of the creators, right? Because very few of these people have credited for this music. And the fact that all this music does is loop, which in effect draws it at least a superficial line from it directly to, you know, your William Basinski's, your Tim Hecker's. And it's kind of amazing that with all the technology we have, most hold music remains just these low quality, blown out, synthetic, easy listening loops. It's kind of incredible, actually, and probably not something that's going to exist in 10 years, if I had to guess. 
So I imagine a comp called like, Your Call is Important to Us, North American Hold Music, 1978 to 1985, or Assisting Other Customers, Midwestern Fuzz Muzak, 1981 to 1996. I don't know. We'll let the marketing department (laughs) handle that part of it, but I don't know. I think I just talked myself into wanting to buy a comp like that. One of the best-known tunes used for hold music, and if I remember right, it was created for that purpose, is uh, Opus Number 1, written by teenagers Tim Carlton and uh, Derek Deland, and recorded on a four-track in 1989. Check it out if you don't know it, though I bet you do. It's actually not far off from something like Moments in Love by Art of Noise, which is a masterpiece, uh, or a lot of 80s Tangerine Dream. If somebody writes a book about this hold music stuff, I will buy it. And yes, I'll totally buy that comp, too, if it comes out. Carrie rather cheekily asks, is there any music you don't like? Oh my gosh, Carrie, tons. Uh, One of the foundational tenets of my marriage is that Leah and I agree that the things one dislikes are as important as the thing one does like. Uh, That said, I can at least tolerate any kind of music. Uh, There's definitely no, like, style or genre that I dismiss out of hand. And I can usually find some value in almost any music. Uh, but yeah, like anyone, I have things that, like if they're playing when I get into an Uber, I'm going to request that they're get turned off, you know. Uh, another big question here. Uh, a listener who prefers to remain anonymous asks, uh, you have been in bands with your wife and significant other and in bands with other couples. I am doing this now and it is not always great. How do you do this without going crazy and or breaking up? Huh. Well, on tour at least, you'll probably do one of those things, or both. Uh, not to be Captain Bumout Anonymous, but many, if not most couples I've ever toured with, are no longer a couple. Though that's obviously anecdotal, and there are definitely uh, many exceptions that prove the rule. Uh, obviously Dead Moon, Yola Tango, many others figured it out, but... Yeah, it can be a strain on a relationship uh, when your band life and your personal life become indistinguishable, especially with multiple couples in a band. And and that's not for any weird Fleetwood Mackian dramas, but more due to the confusing power dynamics and constant tests of loyalty. I remember back then, I would often be in situations when I'd have to ask myself, uh, do I defend my wife in this dumb argument about the roof rack? Or do I defend the person who I know is right? Uh, But touring with your significant other has its advantages too, of course. And I'm sure you know this. It alleviates a lot of the stress that goes along with a, you know, three and a half month trip where you don't, you know, you don't have to miss your partner. So then even the little tiffs and spats you can have in the van are preferable to the misunderstandings and stress that seem to arise on tour when you're separated by these tremendous distances. Like having an argument on the phone with your significant other while you're on tour is the worst thing in the whole world. But do consider that even married people are rarely forced to spend so much concentrated time in one place together. Uh, So my advice is, if you're on tour with your partner... Try to remember that you don't need to be together all the time. And this goes for the platonic relationships in the band too, by the way. Like, whenever possible, do your own thing. And I don't mean isolate yourself, because that's the opposite of what you should do. But, uh, you know, don't invent reasons to not be present, because that gets old fast and people start to resent that. But, you know, if you want to eat tacos and the rest of the band wants pizza, you know, go off and find a taco spot. There's already enough decisions made by committee on tour. 
So I would say exercise your freedom when you can. One band I was in, every time the van stopped in a new city, the six people in the band fanned out in like four or five, sometimes six different directions. You know, the vegan, starving since we were at IHOP that morning and he couldn't eat anything, went to find a vegan cafe. And then the one or two record freaks, and this usually included me, went off to find the nearest record shops. The band's resident fashion plate went off to find vintage denim. Uh, Another would find a guitar shop to browse the latest effects, and then another member who had a sick daughter at home went somewhere to speak on the phone in privacy. So you get the idea, like, an aerial view of our band arriving in a town's main drag would look like a dozen helium balloons being let go simultaneously. Or, you know, like the ghosts fanning out in different directions at the beginning of a game of Pac-Man. Now this is healthy for everyone. Uh, So anyway, Anonymous, good luck. Nigel had a couple of random music questions. He says, I'd love to hear your thoughts on Power Pop, if you have any. Uh, I'm no expert, Nigel, but I do love a ton of Power Pop, which I would identify, I guess, as bands like The Shoes and The Records and obviously stuff like Badfinger and The Raspberries. I love Marshall Crenshaw's records, especially the early records, and oh, Dwight Twilley. My God, Dwight Twilley. You know, I mean, Teenage Fan Club are one of my favorite bands, but I can't say you'd want me on your team in a game of power pop rock and roll Jeopardy, but it is a style I dig. I think if I have one issue with power pop, um, and this is true of pop music in general, it's that it is, by its very nature, a kind of confection, and it doesn't quite stick to the ribs in the way that a lot of music does. Uh, I would stop short of calling it disposable. It's definitely not that. Um, but I've been, I've, I've been listening to some of the same, like, prog and jazz records for 20 years, and I still hear new things. But after you hear Starry Eyes 20 or 30 times, what's left to be revealed? Now, I love Starry Eyes, but, you know, assume, this assumes, of course, that everyone is seeking to discover something new every time they hear a piece of music. And I always have to remind myself that sometimes people just want to hear a great song that they know and like, and that certainly includes me. Nigel's second question is, the other thing I think would be interesting to hear your take on is Robert Pollard, a man who has an even worse case of compulsive songwriting disorder than you. Ah, touche, Nigel. Nigel says, not sure whether you're a fan, but I believe guided by voices as an institution are always worthy of discussion. Uh, I agree. Uh, Nigel, like you and probably many other Toth Zone listeners, I've listened to thousands of records in my life. But there are maybe 15 records ever made that I know by heart. And I don't just mean I know all the words and I can rattle off tiny details and trivia that no one sane cares about. I mean, I know every snare hit, every sharp or flat background vocal, every idiosyncrasy. These are records I can sing from start to finish, uh, music and words alike, in real time, straight through. Now, two of these records for me were made by Guided by Voices, uh, Alien Lanes and B-1000, uh, which are just like two really long songs to me. They're like medleys. I can't imagine hearing any song from these records out of context without the next one following it, you know? I also really like the surrounding albums of this era, like Propeller and Vampire and Titus, Under the Bushes, Under the Stars, and I check out things here and there, but largely lost track somewhere along the way, which is obviously easy to do. But I am definitely pro-GBV. First time I saw them was on the Under the Bushes, Under the Stars tour with The Frogs and Railroad Jerk. I think it was like 1995. Uh, It was one of the best rock shows I've ever seen to this day. Uh, Now I know I'm opening myself up to a thousand emails from the many 
GBV soldiers insisting that I listen to this one or that one. So just to save you the trouble, I fully intend, should I live to be 10,000 years old, to hear all of these records. But, well, you've heard my episode about too much music. Uh, By the way, this may be a good time to crowdsource my idea of covering Alien Lanes in full. I'm thinking about doing that. I have a title for it and everything. It would be like, Alien James Sings GBV. I've been considering it. Uh, Do any of you want to hear that? Uh, Let me know. Could be fun. Maybe like a Patreon-only kind of thing. Thank you, as always, Nigel. Kenny asks, have you ever played or been a victim of a music-related prank? I'm starting to think a lot of my real-life friends here are impishly asking questions they know the answers to, just so I'll tell particular stories and admit to some things publicly. But okay, I'll bite, quote, Kenny, unquote. One of my best music-related pranks took place appropriately at a record store. Uh, A really good one where I worked in Lexington, Kentucky, called CD Central. It's still there, and check it out if you're in the area. So the music we played in the store was almost always played on the CD player behind the counter. And one day, we employees hatched a plan to see how long we could have a single song on repeat throughout the entire day before our boss noticed. Now for you younger listeners, CD players have a setting where you can repeat all or repeat one. So you can just play the same thing over and over without manually hitting the button. It's a cool feature that no one ever actually uses. Okay, so at first we were going to do a whole album, but then we brazenly decided it would be funnier if it was just one song we put on repeat. This would be the repeat one setting. Now our boss Steve was usually so busy and so stressed out with filling various orders and doing whatever it is that record store managers do that he wouldn't notice. Hours would pass, and it was so much fun meeting the gaze of one of your fellow co-conspirators across the record store and giving a knowing smirk as the same song played over and over again. We would kind of like fill in some of the regulars on this little prank too, so they got in on it and just kind of, it's just this really fun thing. And Steve finally cracked one day when we had a song from the then-new Lucinda Williams album on repeat for several hours. He emerged from the office roaring, How long is this song? And he yanked the CD out of the player. He might have stomped on it too, I don't remember. But uh, the record for single song on repeat now is about three hours, Lucinda Williams, and we were determined to beat it. So, on record store day, the busiest day of the year, someone chose a Ty Seagal song, and it played for almost four hours. It might have continued till closing time, but at some point we just told Steve what we were up to, because I think by then, even we were going a little crazy hearing the same song. Steve was a good sport about it, to his credit, and he was mildly amused, but he did demand that we never do that again. Of course, we disobeyed this demand. Here's another one for you. Uh, At the same record store, my friend and fellow employee Edward and I realized one day that a record store is the perfect place to start a music-related rumor. You know, you're seeing so many people, and the chance to spread some completely false gossip was really easy. Now, I insisted the rumor not be mean, and I had to fight Edward on this a bit, because Edward was way meaner than me. I mean, I wanted it to be in good fun. You know, like, I didn't want to start spreading a rumor about, like, you know, Huey Lewis is a child molester or something. So, we decided we would start telling customers, buying a then-very-popular album by a certain popular indie artist, that this certain artist was formerly employed as a police officer. Oh, cool, this one's selling really well today, we'd say to a customer who brought the record to the counter. Crazy that he was a cop before this. 
What? The customer would ask. Oh yeah, you didn't know? He was a cop. Check his Wikipedia page. Now Edward had ingeniously edited the artist's Wikipedia page to reflect the artist's previous life as an enforcer of the law. Now, coincidentally, we noticed that the artist even had a song on one of his albums called Blue Boy. And so we of course made this part of the ruse. Oh yeah, see that song title? That's his secret tribute to his brothers on the force, we would tell customers. Okay, so it's really easy for some of you to figure out who this artist is. And if that artist ever hears this, hey, I'm sorry. It was all in good fun. And if it were up to Edward, you might have had a visit from the FBI. So you can thank me for that. Anyway, you can feel free to retaliate by fucking with my Wikipedia page anytime you like. The best music-related prank someone pulled on me uh, was foisted on me by my own band, For a while, because I was on some bigger indie labels and I had some friends in high places, I started receiving in the mail a lot of demo tapes and CDRs from bands um, in in the hopes, I guess, that I would pass these demos on to someone famous. Uh, Some of these demos were pretty good. Uh, A few were really good. And some were really bad. And sometimes there was an accompanying note asking if I'd mind passing a copy along to Thurston Moore or Michael Girard or Slim Moon or whoever. Uh, By the way, at least one of these enterprising artists who used to send me demos all the time currently headlines many of the big festivals. But I should also mention that this person's demos were in the really good category, so uh, their success didn't really surprise me too much. Maybe that level of ambition pays off sometimes, so I wouldn't really know. Anyway, one day I received a homemade CDR from a group called Modern Dog. I didn't always play the CDRs I was sent, but today, when I got this package, I had a boombox within reach, and I thought the cover art and the band name were intriguing, so I listened to it, and the the music was improv in the general style of my band at the time. Lots of clanging, banging, and thrumming, and thumping, some zoned-out guitar licks, some weird electronic effects of unknown origin. It was pleasant enough, but it didn't make like a huge impression, and I didn't give it much thought. Later that year, I was on tour with my band, riding in the van, uh, and Jarvis asked me if I'd gotten any demos lately. This was not an unusual question, because he got them too, and we'd often end up with a lot of the same ones, and sometimes we'd discuss them. No, I haven't gotten too many lately, I told him. Did you get that one from Modern Dog, he asked, casually as you like? I assumed he too got hit up by Modern Dog. Oh yeah, I actually listened to that one, I said. Did you like it, Jarvis asked. What? I don't, I, don't, I don't know. I don't remember. You didn't like it, he said. I was wondering why Jarvis was pushing this, but I was still oblivious to what was going on. It was fine, I finally said, trying to remember. I don't know. I guess it wasn't that good. Why? At this, the entire band exploded into boisterous laughter. See, these guys had clandestinely recorded this, placed a fake return address on the label, and sent it to me, even going as far as to establish a fake email address for their fake band, Modern Dog. You just said your own band isn't that good, Heidi said through tears of laughter. I would never live this down. Next question. Dave calls me out here by writing, James, you promised to tell us about your worst ever show experience, but you didn't. Okay. I said in episode 24, that it was Charleston, West Virginia, but Leah actually corrected me and reminded me that it was, in fact, Winston-Salem, not Charleston. So sorry, Charleston, we're still cool. So a few episodes ago, I told you about the Eugene, uh, the trick I devised to get one of your crew out of an awkward social situation 
by telling a harmless little white lie about an old friend that doesn't actually exist. But sometimes the situations aren't so much awkward as they are dangerous, and they take a little more careful finessing, require a different kind of trick. This trick doesn't have a catchy name like the Eugene, so for our purposes we'll call it the Can you come over and help me do that thing on the amp that only you know how to do? trick. It was 2013. The band I was playing with was comprised of musician friends from Birmingham, Alabama, a band alternately known as the Briarwood Virgins and later the World War IV. One of my favorite bands I've ever played with, and great friends. Uh, with that band, I think I released some of my best work to this day. And the band, by the way, included David Hickox, who submitted the Fight Club response to this week's poll question. Like The Vanishing Voice, this band began as my backing band, but soon morphed into its own democratic entity, made more than the sum of its parts due to the creativity and the imagination of the personnel. Okay, so we're on tour, and we're due to play Winston-Salem. My wife Leah, also from Alabama, and who actually introduced me to the band in the first place, had joined us for a few shows and so she was along on the trip. So we load in and immediately a few of us catch a distinctly bad vibe. The club was a weird drug scene and not the happy pot or LSD party kind that we were used to. We're talking like raw, redneck, gangsta aura. I've toured with former junkies who can drive into a city and know by instinct, practically from the interstate ramp, which of the otherwise seemingly inconspicuous bodegas were actually fronts for scoring dope? Well, I have a similar sixth sense about weird scenes that feel potentially violent. And the vibe here was so sketchy that at one point I suggested to Brad, our drummer, that we bail on the show. Something I would never do. Something just didn't feel right to me. And after playing hundreds of shows, you know, you learn to trust your instincts. And I still wish we'd bailed, but we didn't. As we played, the white gangsters would pass the stage and throw dollar bills at our feet. Thanks, but we're not gonna strip, I said at one point to Scowls. I was just trying to keep things as light as possible. I don't know, who knows, maybe this was just standard operating procedure at this weird fucking place. You know, maybe they really, really liked us, so they were like, making it rain or whatever. Whatever, we got through the set. Now, packing up in a hurry, I noticed that one of these roguish degenerates had leapt on stage and had cornered Janet as she was trying to break down her gear. Girl, you sound just like Adele, he said, crowding her personal space in a way that looked threatening. It was kind of like the scene in one of the Alien movies where the alien is so close to Ripley's face she could smell its breath. That's kind of what it looked like from a distance. Now, becoming cognizant of the situation, I used my trick. I walked over and I said, Hey, Janet. That amp is doing that thing again. You know the thing. Can you come over here and do that thing only you know how to do to fix the amp? This time, though, it didn't work. The dude followed Janet to the amp and continued to harass her. Now, Janet's plenty tough and can handle herself, but this wasn't your ordinary creep or fan. This guy was like a police sketch come to life, gave off a distinctly evil vibe. Now, Leah, a veteran nightclub booker in her pre-PhD days at the Bottle Tree in Birmingham, Alabama, RIP, who's also blessed with a sixth sense for trouble, also noticed what was going on. Now, Leah's savvy, but Leah has also rarely had to worry about a keyed-up hooligan punching her in the face or worse. Uh, in my experience, that sort of thing is usually reserved for the boyfriend, husband, or gallant protector in these kind of hostile situations. Before I could stop her... Leah made a beeline for the dude and stared right into his eyes. Dude, she said, you need to get the fuck off the stage and let these guys put away their shit. Fuck. What? The dude barked. I instinctively got in front of Leah, but I didn't want to get too close to this dude. 
girl, I built this fucking place, he said, becoming animated in a way you only see in movies where there's about to be like a rumble in the prison yard. Some place, said Leah. Oh, fuck, again. At this, another band member intervened and ushered Leah into the van for safety, while the rest of us did damage control inside. Now, this crowd wasn't comprised of indie rocker schlubs we could try to counter-intimidate or whose bluff we could call if necessary. These were tough, criminal motherfuckers, and we were on their turf. Now, because I am a stubborn, prideful jackass, I started getting a little mouthy, probably due to the fact that the dude had minutes earlier been shitty to my wife. You can take the boy out of New York, uh, etc. Dude, we just want to leave, okay? said Janet, the voice of reason. I think you better, said the guy threateningly, who then unambiguously motioned to his midsection to reveal the unmistakable bulge of a pistol in his waistband. Miraculously, we left without further incident, though with tensions running high and adrenaline at a fever pitch, the band members got into a squabble outside, like the worst argument we would ever have. Uh, the only argument we ever had where I remember that most of us were raising our voices. So yeah, the worst show I ever played was the one where I was sort of threatened with a gun and my band almost broke up outside as a result. Finally, Ashley asks, what is your favorite song of all time? Ashley, I have a running list of about 25 or 30 uh, such songs, but the piece of music I think I love more than any other in the world is the trio version of Thelonious Monk's rendition of Jimmy Van Heusen and Eddie DeLang's Darn That Dream. Now, that's the trio version from 1956, not the solo version. Uh, for some reason, there's no piece of music that makes me happier. It's just this light pop tune, but the way it's played... Uh, just as, I don't know, it's just something. As for the others, um, the other 25 or 30, I don't think like making lists translates to the podcast medium. Uh, but if even one person is interested and lets me know, I will write out a list of my all-time favorite songs and I'll post it publicly on Patreon so that even non-subscribers can see it, um, if you're interested. Uh, all of these would be songs that are, in my opinion, flawless, perfect 10 songs. And if I, if I pass from this mortal coil tomorrow, and for some reason one of you is put in charge of compiling a funeral playlist, any of these will do. That seems like an appropriate place to conclude this, our final episode of the season. Thank you all for listening, for contributing, and especially to Toth's own patrons, who are the reason we've been able to do 30 episodes without a single annoying ad. Thanks to Nick for the theme song. I hope everyone has a great summer, and I hope we can all make up for the time lost during the pandemic. As for me, I'll be working on lots of music, lots of writing, uh, hopefully doing some much-needed traveling. 111 Heavy fans, uh, we will have some big news about album number three soon, and we're planning to get back on the road in early 2022, probably starting in Europe this time. Uh, patrons, you can look forward to plenty of content over the summer in the form of mixtapes, demos, discounts on Bandcamp releases, regular updates, as well as some Patreon-exclusive summer supplement episodes of the Toth Zone. Uh, these will be like shorter episodes, but with the same general theme as the Toth Zone. They'll focus less on memoir and more on like, you know, specific records and stuff. Uh, anyone not already a patron who wants to hear these summer supplements, tiers begin at only $5 a month and get you access to everything I've posted on the page since the beginning. Patreon.com slash The Toth Zone. 
You can also find me on Twitter at JimmyJackToth and reach me at thetothzone at Outlook.com. Once again, thank you all for being here and for listening to me babble obsessively for 30 episodes. Till we meet again, this is James Toth signing off from The Toth Zone.